Well, hello and welcome to worship today. One of the things I want to share with you before we jump into today's message from God's Word is just an amazing opportunity that is coming next Saturday afternoon starting at 1 p.m. Debbie and I are so pleased to be able to host this Gordon College preview event. It's going to be held at our Half Moon location right there at the Half Moon campus and President D. Michael Lindsay of Gordon College will be there to share briefly and answer any questions. Also, uh, Dan Tyman, who's become a dear friend of Grace Fellowship, he has friendship with many people here at Grace, including Debbie and myself. He is the executive vice president of Gordon College, an amazing leader, an amazing Christian. And uh, he will be there as well, along with a number of faculty and some current students. In fact, our son Chase, uh, who is a senior, at Gordon will be there as well. Now, as you know, we don't often promote things like this, but I'm excited because no matter where you are in your process of maybe choosing a college, uh, I believe that this meeting can be helpful for you just in getting more information for that. And there's so many great schools out there. Gordon may not be the school for you, but this will, this will really help you as you make your decision. Who is this for? It's for the parents, the grandparents of any young person who's in that college decision process. You could be, uh, you know, maybe in the sixth, seventh grade, but you're already thinking, where am I going to be going to school? And obviously, it's for young people who are in high school as well, because that time to make your choice is getting very close. We'd love to see you there next Saturday afternoon, starting at 1 p.m. You can come as, and go as you'd like. There will be some wonderful hors d'oeuvres there. It's just a laid-back time of thinking a little bit about God's destiny for you and where he would want you to invest those important years of learning. We'd love to see you there at Half Moon next Saturday afternoon. Well, we're in a series called Meaningful Membership. And we've been looking at some of our covenant expectations. These are things that I think God really expects of all genuine followers of Jesus. And we've talked, for instance, about this first one. I will love, honor, and obey Jesus Christ above all else in my life. Understanding that my life is my ministry, I will seek to represent Jesus well at all times. If we get that, that really says all we need to say because that's lordship. But since we often don't understand the implications of it all, we're listing some other things here in our covenant which are simply examples. They're not exhaustive. We could add dozens of things to this that healthy disciples of Jesus tend to be engaged in, but we thought we'd mention six more things that kind of illustrate that first principle. We talked then about prayer. I will learn and practice the disciplines of private and corporate prayer. God wants us to grow in our prayer life. But if it's not something you're committed to, then, then I, I really don't think that membership is something that you should really explore at this time. And then last weekend, we talked about the Word of God. I will become a consistent student of the Scriptures. And if you haven't heard that message, please go online. The positive feedback from that is just off the charts as we talked about hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, 
and meditating on the Word of God. And as I've shared with you, if you engage in all of these disciplines out of a heart of love for Jesus and you never become a covenant member, I'm serious when I say I'm ecstatic because it's all about growing deeper in Jesus and I just want that for you so badly. But if you engage in all these disciplines and practice them out of a heart of love and the motivation is important, and you choose to become a covenant member at Grace, I'm doubly ecstatic because this is one amazing team, and I love it when people get intentional and say, look, this is my team, and I want to declare it. Now, some of you, God may be making you ready for that kind of commitment, and so I'll mention it today and each week following, uh, there's going to be an opportunity for you to take a class, a membership class, and I'm doing something I've not done in a long time. Just in light of this special series, uh, you know, I've decided I want to see you there. Those of you who are ready for this, for covenant membership, it's going to be on Sunday afternoon, February the 12th. And again, this is at our Half Moon campus also. It's going to start at 2 p.m. And uh, we're going to spend some time together and just kind of unpack what it means to be a covenant member. And if you've not heard all these messages, I would encourage you to listen to any that you've missed online before you come to that class. So sign up. Let us know you're coming so we can be prepared and have all the materials we need and all the refreshments we need. But let us know you're going to make it if you're planning to attend that February the 2nd class, all right? Now today, I want us to look at that fourth covenant expectation and it reads something like this. Whenever I'm in the Capital District, I will regularly participate in public worship, celebration, and fellowship with the corporate body of believers called Grace Fellowship. Whatever your campus is, whether you're in Greenbush, Saratoga, Half Moon, Latham, you're saying, look, I, I'm not just going to roll over and go back to sleep and go to Bedside Baptist, if you know what I mean just because I don't feel good or I've got a little headache. You know, Bedside Baptist, it's that wonderful church where Reverend Sheets, what a great man of God he is. Reverend Sheets always has a soothing message. There is a lot of turnover in that church, I hear, but man, what an incredible place. A lot of people go there, Bedside Baptist. No, no, no. We're saying you would make a commitment to be in worship, not just because of what you can get, but because of what you can share and help out with with others. Every time I come to this building, I'm praying this prayer, God, help me to be your representative in this place. Help me to represent you well, Lord, in what I say, and my whole attitude and demeanor and the people that I meet. And I would urge you to do the same thing. Worship is a vital part of our life. It is incredibly important. Now, let me ask you, why do you think most people go to church to worship? A great leader in the early 20th century said he believes there are four reasons that most people go to church. One, they think it's the decent thing to do. Two, they're often fans of popular preachers. Third, he said they go for matters of personal reputation. It, it's kind of good for your reputation to be a churchgoer. And he said, number four, they see worship as a sort of glorified aspirin tablet that you take to deal 
with the anxieties of life. What about you? Why do you go to worship? Maybe you go to, to hear a, a message that's interesting. Maybe you go to hear some good music or to be entertained. One father complained all the way home from church. The music was too loud. The message was too long. The announcements were unclear. He just griped and griped. And finally, his perceptive little son in the back seat said, Dad, well, you've got to admit it wasn't a bad show for a dollar. You got to admit it. You got to admit it. Why do you go to church? Well, the primary reason is to worship the living God. Psalm 95 reads like this Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for we are his God. And he is our God, rather, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's a call for God's people to worship him. And yet worship, as A.W. Tozer said, is often the missing piece. It's the missing jewel in the church. Tozer wrote, we organize, we evangelize, we teach, we preach. But he said, we really do not often worship. I think he's absolutely right. When a person first comes to Christ, most church leaders want to turn that person into a worker. They want to get them busy as fast as they can. You know what I think? I think God's first agenda is to make us worshipers. And if he can make us worshipers, then out of that worship will flow all the appropriate work that he's designed for us to do. So let's talk today about what worship is, why we worship, and then let's get real practical at the end and talk about how we can make worship more meaningful and effective. And I invite you to jot down some ideas and some notes as we go. First of all, what is worship? What do we mean by that? The English word worship means to attribute worth to. In other words, we communicate to God his high value. The Hebrew word for worship means to fall prostrate, to prostrate yourself or to bow down before God. The Greek word for worship has the same connotation, but also it means to kiss toward. In other words, you're showing proper affection and respect to God. So when we worship, we're doing that. We're acknowledging God is great and we're not. We're acknowledging that he is the creator and we are the cre created beings. William Temple, the archbishop, gave a definition of worship that has become, I think, the most popular definition ever quoted. I thought it worth sharing with you. I think it's actually quite good. Temple said, worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration 
the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. He's saying that that's what adoration is. It's a very selfless emotion. And therefore, the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. You say, wow, that's wordy. Well, yeah, it is. But boy, there's a lot packed in there. And I particularly like this phrase. He's saying that worship is the chief remedy for what ails us. I think Temple is absolutely correct about that. Now, in studying biblical worship, I've concluded that there seem to be two ingredients that are always present when genuine biblical worship is happening. And we're going to look at both of them. Let me give them to you quickly, and then we'll unpack each one. First, there's a sense of awe, a sense of awe, and then secondly, there is a sense of joy. So you have those, a sense of awe and a sense of joy. First, let's talk a moment about that sense of awe that's always there in genuine worship. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And Isaiah's reaction was, yippee hi yay there, little buddy. Oh, I'm so glad God is our friend. How you doing, buddy? No, no, no. When Isaiah saw God in his awesomeness, and by the way, that cavalier attitude toward God is actually astoundingly present today in some services. He said, I'm ruined, I'm wrecked, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In other words, we're all ruined because this holy, awesome God is on his throne, and we're accountable to God. That was the prophet's response when he saw the awesomeness of God and his own unworthiness. You know, I've had the privilege of meeting Billy Graham on a number of occasions and having conversations with him. And when I first met Billy Graham, I did not walk up to him and go, yo, hey, Billy, how's it going, dude? Give me a fist pump. No, although he's a flawed human being, someone of his stature deserves respect. And so with my heart beating faster, I walked up, extended my hand, and said, hello, Mr. Graham. It's a pleasure to meet you, sir. Something of respect, something of awe ought to be in our lives when we come into the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's wonderment and reverence. The presence of God, folks, is awesome. He's so much holier and more powerful than we. Have you ever stood outside on maybe a very clear night where you could see just countless stars in the heavens? Have you ever stood there like I have so many times and just looked up at those stars and thought, wow, the God that created this is awesome? And then has your mind ever wandered and have you ever thought, why would he even have a thought about me? 
I think that's what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 8 when he said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we worship God, there's a sense of awe. But that second theme of joy is also very important. We cannot miss it. Biblical worship, genuine worship, always has a sense of joy in it. When I read in the book of Acts, chapter 2, about the early church and what their life was like together, I read words like this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Notice that. They were praising God together. Those are words for corporate worship. They met every day, by the way, in the temple courts and did that. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, why were they so joyful? Because they recognized they weren't serving some impersonal force in the universe that they should be terrified of who might zap them at any moment for no reason. No. They understood that they were worshiping a heavenly father who knew the number of hairs on their head who had sent Jesus to die on the cross so their sins could be forgiven and they could be brought back into a relationship with God. They understood that God was for them and not against them. And now they had a purpose in life. You bet they were joyful. That's why the Psalms are filled with this theme. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs, and on and on, you see that theme all over. Now, friends, I'm just going to suggest to you that failure to appropriately recognize both of these themes, the awe of God and the joy that we should have in worship, have led to a lot of has led to a lot of unnecessary controversy. For example, if you grew up in a liturgical background, maybe Lutheran or Episcopal or Catholic, those traditions probably emphasize silence and reverence and quietness. When leading worship on the platform, a liturgical leader might get up and say, in a very resonant voice, be still and know that I am God. And there's such a holy awe in the place. There's such a reverence for who God is. But if you grew up that way and you go to a congregation where people are talking a lot and just chattering away and laughing and clapping during worship, you're tempted to think that they're so irreverent and downright inappropriate. But on the other hand, if you grew up in a Pentecostal charismatic background, maybe a Nazarene church, Assembly of God, or a down-home Baptist where people like to shout and jump and make noise in worship, you're accustomed to that, and you, you probably had a leader get up and say, all right, folks, God's alive. God's alive. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. Let's hear some noise in this place. 
And a Pentecostal who visits a very reverent church is probably going to think that church is dead. He's going he's to look around and go, man, has anybody told you guys Jesus rose from the dead? Let's see some joy in here. I heard a Pentecostal leader some time back say, you know, I went to one of those liturgical churches the other day. He said a guy died of a heart attack right in the middle of the service, and the ushers carried out five guys before they found the right one. Now, folks, that's a dead church right there. That's a dead church. Here's my point. Worship should be both awesome and joyful. There honestly ought to be times when we're so quiet before God and in awe we could hear a pin drop. And there should be other times when we so feel the grace of God in our lives that we literally laugh and shout and dance for joy. But to pull that off in the appropriate healthy balance is going to require flexibility. It's going to require humility. It's going to require grace and understanding. Well, we've talked about what is worship, but now let's talk for a moment about what the purpose of worship is. Why do we gather here every week and have these worshipful activities? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that the first purpose of worship is to glorify God. Now, boy, if there was ever a stained glass word, that's it, isn't it? Glorify. You hear it used quite a bit, but what in the world does it mean? I'm going to give you a definition. To glorify God means to magnify his attributes and character in such a way that they are better understood. In other words, through our worship, who God is should be made more visible, more clear. Psalm 29 reads, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. It's really for God. When Villanova's basketball team won the NCAA Division I National Basketball Championship last year, there was a huge celebration back at Villanova on campus. And boy, it was a mob scene. Fans went to get autographs and to cheer their team. They waved banners. It was a raucous celebration. But the purpose of that was not to please the fans. The purpose was to show appreciation for the to the team for their dedication and their skill and this amazing thing they had accomplished and all the joy they had brought to the people. And when the people left, I doubt that many of them said, boy, I didn't get much out of that. They knew it wasn't for them. They knew it was for the team. And they probably were saying, boy, I hope those players understood how much we really appreciate them. Psalm 147 reads, the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. So we worship to give honor and praise to God, to glorify him, to make his character more clearly understood. But second, worship is also to edify us. When we worship, it edifies us. In other words, we too get built up. When C.S. Lewis, the eminent Oxford scholar, first became a Christ follower, he says in his 
autobiography that he struggled a little bit with this. Well, all this glory to God, is God an egomaniac? I mean, why why are we supposed to always be giving glory to God? And he said, then as I explored it more, I came to understand that this was actually a benevolent act on God's part. As we glorify and worship him, he gives himself, C.S. Lewis said, to us in that act. And we are enriched. We are edified. That's, by the way, why private worship is so important. If you struggle with stress, if you struggle with fear and anxieties, if you, like most people I know in this crazy world, if you have apprehensions in your life or concerns about how things are going to work out. Listen, worship, as William Temple said earlier, is the chief remedy for that. If you're on meds, I'm not saying go off of them. Everybody hear that? If you're bipolar, please take your medication. Chemical imbalances are a very real thing. They're not to be ignored or scoffed at. But don't miss the point. The chief remedy of most of our problems could at least partially be solved by some private, personal worship of God. It's amazing how it puts things in perspective. And corporate worship often does the same thing. Has it ever happened to you? It's happened to me hundreds of times. I've come to the corporate worship service. Often I wasn't even excited about it. Has this ever happened to you? I came and I had all these worries on my mind, all these things weighing me down, all these things I was concerned about with life, whether it was financial or relational, whether it had to do with the church, whatever it was. And as I got into worship and began to open my mouth and actually sing praise to God, it's incredible. I suddenly found strength was flowing into me. I suddenly found, wow, all those things that I was fretting about so much when I came here, wow, they're suddenly melting away. In the light of his glory and grace, it's happened hundreds of times. I'll bet it's happened to many of you. And I walked away saying, wow, it was good to be with God's people in the house of the Lord. There's one other purpose of worship, though, that I want to mention briefly, and that is that genuine worship is a testimony to the unsaved. The longer I've been in Christian ministry and been a pastor, the more I've come to appreciate this third purpose of worship. It's a testimony to the unsaved. In Acts 2.47, it says the early church was praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord, catch this, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Listen to me. When people who are genuinely exploring Christ see real believers engage in worship, I'm telling you, it is a powerful testimony. It has a contagious nature to it. It draws people to Christ. In John chapter 12, we read, But I, this is Jesus talking, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. I'm going to draw people. Now, obviously, Jesus was speaking there of his being lifted up on the cross at Calvary when he gave his life for our sins. He's speaking of how his atoning sacrifice was going to make a way for people to come to God. 
That's what he was talking about, obviously. But in another very real way, when we lift him up in our worship, when we're reminded of his redemptive acts on our behalf, and when we extol him for that, it has a powerful way of drawing people to Christ. I've watched that happen here at Grace now for almost 24 years. And I've had the testimony over and over again. Somebody will come in, they go, it's my first time here. I wept through the whole service. I don't know what it was. I just, I just sat there and I felt something I haven't felt. And I said, wow, God is in this place. And I looked all around me and people had tears streaming down their face. And I said, wow, this is real. God is in this place. There's something powerful about God's people worshiping him. You can read about this in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, who'd been beaten within an inch of their life, were thrown into an inner dungeon in a prison. They were in chains. And the Bible says at midnight they sang praises to God. Can you believe that? <laughs> praises to God. Now, the jailer had heard curses coming out of that prison for many years. He had heard the most vile things said, but he had never heard people worshiping God. And then an earthquake released them, and the doors sprang open, and the jailer fell at their feet and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Their worship had prepared the soil of his heart for the seed of the word of God. And it happens every weekend at Grace Fellowship. When God's people worship him in spirit and truth, that prepares the soil of hearts who are hungry for God. Sally Morgenthaler, in her book, Worship Evangelism, wrote, Worship is the most powerful tool we have for satisfying the hunger of famished souls. Our whole culture, saved and unsaved, is starving. And I love her language. I think she's right. Our culture is starving for an extraordinary glimpse of God. So worship is not just for the spiritually mature. It's not just for Christ-centered people that we talk about at Grace. It's for the spiritually hungry, and that includes people, more people, than we realize. We've talked about what worship is, the purpose of it. For just a few minutes here, I want us to now get really practical and ask the how word. The how. That's always what it comes down to. How do you put good theology into practice? Our practice ought to always flow out of our theology. So let's talk about it. How can we make our personal and corporate worship more effective? I'm going to briefly give you four words. They all begin with P. You may want to write these down. But more important, I hope you really get the meaning behind them. The first word is paradigm. Make sure your paradigm of worship is correct. Sometimes I get concerned about how our buildings are shaped inside. Winston Churchill, commenting on the way that the buildings of Parliament are shaped, how the opposing parties sit opposite each other and basically argue, he said, and I quote, we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us. That's a profound statement, folks. 
And sometimes I get concerned as a pastor that the way our buildings are set up with chairs out here all facing one direction, facing a platform, I get concerned about the theology that conveys. And so it's become common for people to have bad theology of worship. Their paradigm's off. They think that they're the spectators and they come to see a performance. And that the people on the platform, whoever they are, readers, prayers, singers, song leaders, preachers, all this that goes on up here, we're like performers and they're out there to critique that and try to evaluate how we did, okay? And God is like prompting us, those who are on the platform. Are you listening to me? If that's your paradigm of worship, that is deadly to worship. That's not a biblical paradigm at all, not even close. The paradigm I would hope you would embrace and really understand is that you, indeed all of us, but you are the worshipers. You come to church, you don't need to ask, how did the preacher do? You need to ask, how did I do? You're here to worship God. Those of us on the platform are simply prompters. That's all we are. We're just here to try to encourage you in your worship of God. God is the audience. We never need to walk out of church saying, well, how did that song go? How did that singer do? How did that person do who led that? How was the sermon? I don't mind if you discuss how the sermon was. But it's not about a performance. It's not about me and how I did. What you need to be asking as you walk in is, how did I do, Lord? Because God is your audience. He sees your heart. And that's why participation, as we'll see later, is so vitally important. The second P word is the word preparation. Preparation. I would urge you to make preparation before you come to corporate worship. Ecclesiastes 5 reads, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. What does it mean to guard your steps? Don't come with a cavalier spirit. Be prepared. Get your soul prepared. When you go to worship, do you just pop out of bed, race to get your clothes on, jump in the car, kind of come here, tip your hat to God and race away? Or are you guarding your steps to the house of God. I love people who come early. I'll tell you, I really respect those people who don't just arrive late and leave early. I, I love it when people show up early and actually sit and reflect. Maybe they'll read scripture a little bit or maybe they'll just close their eyes. We have lots of people, dozens of people who do this and they just sit and just begin to pray. They're just preparing their soul for worship. That's fantastic. That's good preparation. I have a routine I do, uh, for instance, every Sunday morning and every Saturday before our service. On Sunday morning, for instance, I get up kind of early and I go and I get my body moving because I want to be at my very best. I don't want to be sluggish at all. I go get a little exercise. I come back this whole time. I'm reflecting on Scripture, which is the most life-changing thing we can do. And I'm rehearsing some scripture and I'm reflecting on it and saying, Lord, and I'm praying, God, would you do something extraordinary today? 
I am so frail. I don't have anything to offer these people. But as I get up there and try to prompt them in their worship, would you help me to represent you well to them? These are the kind of things I pray every time before we get together. Preparation is important. The third word is priority. Worship ought to be a priority in our lives and not an afterthought. So develop some traditions, as I just described, that may help you prepare better. It might mean for you playing some worshipful music in your home or something that kind of gets you in that spirit before you get here. It might be being careful about how you dress. I'm happy that at Grace... We have a sort of casual dress code. It's a, it's a come as you are kind of thing. I personally think that's very good. To me, it was always stressful to have to dress up to go to church. Now I usually dress, you know, kind of on a business casual or something like that normally. But you, you come as you are as long as you're modest and as long as you're neat. I would urge you to be modest and neat in your dress, whoever you are. And you know what I think you'll find? That you will be in more of a spirit of worship if you're dressed in a way that is comfortable like that and appropriate. The fourth word is participation. Participation. And that's really what it boils down to. Since we're here to worship God, not to evaluate a performance, we must participate. God is here to receive our worship. He's the audience, remember? And so we all need to ask, Lord, how was my worship today? Jesus said in John 4, yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, what are some of the ways that you can do that? Obviously, through singing. I urge you to not just sit back and watch everybody else sing. Join in. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making music in your heart to the Lord, Scripture says. I would urge you to participate in communion when we celebrate that. Typically, we do that on the first weekend of every month, sometimes more often. But communion is a powerful way to participate in worship. And when you take communion, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Another powerful form of worship is the offering. It's a time to participate. First Chronicles 16 reads, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The offering is not just a necessary evil to pay the bills. It's an act of worship that is profound. We're giving a part of ourselves, something that we treasure back to God. Listening is an act of worship. When God's word is being spoken, then we listen with ears to hear, with a heart that is receptive. And it pleases God by the foolishness of preaching, not only to save those who believe, but to change lives for him. But you know the most important way we worship? It's how we live when we leave this place. You can come and 
sing to your heart's desire. You can give an offering. You can participate in communion. You can be fully involved. But if you go out in the parking lot and curse people and begin to give those ancient cryptic hand signals to your fellow drivers, if you go home and you abuse your family, if you're crotchety with people in the workplace and greedy, you've dishonored God. Worship ultimately is not singing songs and doing things in a building. Worship ultimately is a lifestyle. And as I close, let me just remind you, this is so important. This topic is so critical because worship is the one thing we'll never stop doing. Do you know all of our activities here are gonna cease one day? Our evangelism will stop. There'll be no lost people in heaven. No need to evangelize. Teaching will cease. Won't need preachers like me, I'll tell you, because the Bible says prophecies will cease. No need for that anymore. Our church won't be an organization anymore. There's no need for that. We're all one in heaven. The mission's been accomplished. It's all done. All of our comings and goings here are going to cease one day. But the one thing that has about it, the durable quality of eternity, is worship. Isn't that amazing? It's the one thing we'll never stop doing. And if that's that important, I think we ought to start taking it a little more seriously down here. Father, thank you that you've called us to be worshipers first and then workers. Thank you that you want to so bend our hearts toward you that we would be people filled with gratitude and praise awed by your majesty, joyful over your love and grace. And may that be the tone always as we get together. In Jesus' name, amen Amen. and amen.